Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hey everybody, CJ here, your humble hazardous history helmsman, back with another dino-sized dose of dangerous history. This is episode 99, A History of American Slavery, part 5, The Economics and Politics of Antebellum Slavery. We're going to be talking about a bunch of different economic aspects of slavery as it existed prior to the not-so-civil war, and we're also going to be talking about the politics of revolving around slavery, particularly at the federal or national level. And before we get into that, got some other things to get out of the way. First off, Patreon shoutouts. And I'm sorry to report that no new Patreon supporters have signed up over at patreon.com slash profcj to help support the Dangerous History podcast since the last episode that I recorded. So please consider signing up there. If you like this show, want to help it stay around and keep getting better all the time, and you want to get a little bit of extra doses of dangerous history as well, go over there and sign up for any amount donation per episode, and I'll thank you by name in the next episode that I produce. And in addition to that, if you sign up for a minimum of $1 per episode donation, and more is certainly much appreciated, but for just a minimum donation of $1 per episode, you will have access to some bonus dangerous history podcast episodes that are available nowhere else over at patreon.com slash profcj. A few other announcements before I get into the meat of today's show topic. The first is regarding Porkfest. I mentioned last time Porkfest, the big kind of annual Lollapalooza of Liberty up there in Lancaster, New Hampshire, that I've never been to, but I'm going to be going this summer. I will, in fact, be there from the 24th, I think that's Friday, and then leaving on the 26th, which is Sunday. Not sure exactly what time I'll be getting there on the 24th or exactly when I'll be leaving on the 26th. So the only day that I'll be there, you know, the entire day is going to be the 25th, which I think is a Saturday. And I'm very happy to report that I will, in fact, be giving a talk at Borkfest on Saturday, 625. Still not certain what time of day that will be. And it will be at the Alt Expo tent or pavilion or whatever it is they have. And the title of my presentation is... The Tao of Mao, applying the way of the gorilla to things other than war. And you can probably get a basic idea of some of the things I'll be talking about just based on, on the title of the presentation. But the, the main idea is going to be what are some of the things that effective guerrilla fighters, effective insurgents, effective David versus Goliath types do? You know, what are some of their, their methods and so on? And then... How can we extrapolate from that and learn lessons that apply even to those of us who never, ever intend to be engaged in a physical, violent struggle with the powers that be, but who are just trying to accomplish important things with meager resources and those sorts of, you know, people who are in analogous situations that are not to do with actual physical war. And I'm going to be giving some examples of 
instances of people, whether knowingly or not, employing the way of the guerrilla to various endeavors that are not actual war. So um, if you're going to be there, I look forward to possibly meeting you, shaking your hand. I hope you can come to my presentation. And I just have to say, I can use all the help I can get for actually getting to Porkfest. Lancaster, New Hampshire is over 1,300 miles away from where I live, and I'll be making that drive in the trusty Silver Bullet, and I need as much help as I can get for gas money, especially if gas keeps creeping up between now and late June. Also, though I do have a place to crash at Porkfest, I could also use a bit of cash because there's no way I can make a 13-mile drive in one stretch, which means I am going to have to stop and stay the night someplace roughly halfway, you know, on the way up and then again on the way back. And while I've got no problem staying in a pretty darn cheap motel, um, in fact, I kind of have affection for ratty motels because I grew up in a in a house that was, you know, not a lot of disposable income. So most of the time when we went on family vacations, it was cheap motels. I'm kind of used to them. But nonetheless, it still costs money. So long story short, please consider sending me in a one-time donation via PayPal or Bitcoin for this purpose. You can even, if you want to make sure I understand what it's for, you can even put in the, in the little message box, you know, for Porkfest or something like that. And if you can find it in your heart and in your wallet to do so between now and late June, just to give me a little bit, almost sort of like a, you know, a little mini Kickstarter crowdfunding thing to help me get to Porkfest and back, I would greatly appreciate it. One more announcement, as you can probably tell, since this is episode 99, that means that next episode of the Dangerous History Podcast will be episode 100. So... In honor of that nice round number and in honor of the fact that the show has significantly many times over beat the average life expectancy for a podcast, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different for that episode. I'm going to be pausing the History of Slavery miniseries, most likely returning to that with episode 101, but I'm going to be talking about some different stuff and I'm not going to give it all the way now, but one thing that I think would be cool to do is that I'm offering to answer any non-history-related questions that you want to submit to me for episode 100. Please submit them either via email, the email address is profcj at profcj.org, or via Facebook, the Dangerous History Podcast page, or my Twitter account for the Dangerous History Podcast. Anything you want to ask me that's not directly history related is fair game, although, of course, I reserve the right to choose to not answer your question for any reason. I'm willing potentially to even answer some semi-personal questions, you know, depending on the question. I'm not promising I will answer every single question that is submitted to me between now and roughly maybe four or five, six, seven days uh, from now when I'll likely be recording episode 100. Not promising I'll answer every question that's submitted to me. There might be a lot. Some of them might be weird or things I can't or won't answer. But I'd just like to say in advance, please don't take it personally if I don't answer your question. Don't, you know, get your feelings hurt. There's probably going to be a fair number that I just can't get to for time, and I'm going to be choosing which ones I think will be the most interesting for people to listen to. But anyway, submit your non-history-related question between now and roughly the middle of next week, you know, April 5th or something like that. And I just may answer it as part of episode 100. 
So anyway, on to episode 99, A History of American Slavery, Part 5, The Economics and Politics of Slavery. Sort of interwoven with talking about the economics of slavery, you have to talk a bit, a bit about the historiography. And the reason for that is because there's been a lot of controversy about the economics of slavery. For a long time, historians who wrote about slavery took it for granted that slavery was consistently declining in profitability in the second half of the antebellum period. And they took it for granted that it was extremely inefficient relative to paid wage labor. And this belief was based on what many writers, both North and South, wrote about slavery in the antebellum period, especially the latter half of the antebellum period, the decades right before the not-so-civil war. Now, ironically, anti-slavery writers and defenders of slavery both argued that slavery was not very profitable and was declining in profitability. Both pro- and anti-slavery people thought that. Now, the anti-slavery writers argued that slavery was was uh, declining in profitability as just, an, in their mind, another reason that the institution should be done away with, along with, of course, the moral argument. They're then adding in, oh, and it's not even that productive anyway. And conversely, many slavery apologists also claimed that slavery wasn't very profitable, and the reason they were doing that was in order to sort of buttress their claim that slavery was, above all else, a humanitarian benevolent institution, and that it was paternalism, not profit, that was really the slave owner's main concern. So isn't that interesting that both opponents and proponents of slavery were trotting out this idea that, no, slavery is really not even that profitable, and it's declining in profitability anyway. However, these arguments that slavery was increasingly unprofitable are not taken as fact today. They really weren't based on much in the way of hard data. And as is often the case, the claims of people at the time don't seem to have accurately reflected the hard facts of reality, as is so often the case, right? They were instead, whether consciously or not, really doing what most people tend to do most of the time, which is to endorse claims that seem to support the larger argument or narrative you're trying to make. In other words, these claims of people at the time were at best based on very anecdotal evidence and on a very subjective interpretation and perspective, and weren't looking at sort of larger amounts of data to figure out what really is the truth in, in the grand scheme of things. Today, and for the last at least three or four decades, the vast majority of experts on the economics of American slavery no longer believe that the institution was declining in profitability prior to the Civil War. Thanks to huge amounts of, of data to look at and modern methods of doing economic history, most experts on the economics of American slavery now believe that, in fact, owning slaves was still quite profitable in most situations, right on up through 1860. The dividing line on this controversy seems to be somewhere around the 1960s, is when historians really started to turn away from the argument that slavery was declining in profitability, and instead to say, no, actually, it was quite profitable right up through 1860. Prior to about the 1960s, and I think there were maybe a few historians earlier who started to, started to push this argument, but in the early 20th century, 
there was a lot of historiography about slavery that was, in effect, quite racist and that largely endorsed the pro-slavery Southern, you know, antebellum argument that slavery was a benevolent institution and that it actually was good for blacks because they were inferior. This is yet another example of mainstream, you know, Ivy League academics prior to World War II endorsing and, and trotting out arguments that are almost almost of a national socialist sort of a flavor because they're so big into pseudoscientific racism and all that sort of stuff. So, for example, what was long considered one of the definitive works on the history of slavery in the early 20th century was a book by Ulrich Bonnell Phillips entitled Negro Slavery, a Survey of the Supply, Employment, and Control of Negro Labor as Determined by the Plantation Regime, which was published in 1918, the same year World War I ended. And this is what Jeffrey Hummel says about this book in the bibliographical essay on the historiography of slavery in his book, Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Free Men. Quote, Overtly racist, Phillips portrayed slavery as a civilizing influence on blacks, but nonetheless offered the first solid historical treatment of the subject. On the basis of trends in slave and cotton prices, he also argued that slavery was unprofitable. End quote. But Hummel and most other competent economic historians no longer believe at all in the argument that slavery was very unprofitable or anything like that. As far as I can tell, the questioning of slavery's supposed declining profitability, at least the questioning of it in a big way making an impact, started in the 1960s with the work of people like Kenneth Stamp and his peculiar institution. And when you're talking about the economics of American slavery, there's one important work you have to mention, even though it's very controversial, and at least some of its arguments have been, uh, as far as I am concerned, invalidated. And that book is Time on the Cross by Robert Fogel and Stanley Engerman. This book was first published in the 1970s, and then I think a, a 20-year reprint of it came out in the 90s. While some of their arguments, and they make a ton of them, are controversial among experts in the field, and at least a few of those have been, I think, pretty definitively debunked, some of the claims, though, have stood the test of time. Fogel and Engerman relied on what was still then the relatively new, quote-unquote, way of doing economic history, what's known as cliometrics, which is a way of, fo of doing economic history that focuses on quantitative data, rather than on other forms of information, and then using statistical methods and models and things to analyze this data. Now, cliometrics have revealed some useful things in the historical record for sure, but it has its limitations, and the people who practice it often treat it as, it, as if it's like scientific in, in the manner of physics or something, or, or even of basic math, as, it's, as if it's true with a capital T. But there are problems and limitations, some of which I'll mention, uh, but there are others as well, including from people far more knowledgeable in the field than I am. One problem is, by focusing entirely on quantifiable data, you leave out lots of important questions, lots of important information that's either not quantifiable or that might be quantifiable, but for which we just don't have sufficient and reliable historical records. And there are other criticisms specifically from the Austrian School of Economics that get into the relationship between economic data and economic theory that I'm not going to get into here because honestly, as of right now, 
I only partially understand them and probably would not do the best job of explaining them. But in brief, some of the claims, some of the arguments made by Fogel and Engerman in Time on the Cross would be things like slaves were very profitable investments and yielded rates of return similar to northern industrial capital. And if anything, this profitability appeared on the eve of the Civil War to be increasing. Now, this insight, they were not the first to make this argument. In fact, for over a decade beforehand, several notable historians had also pointed this out. And this insight is probably the least controversial among historians ever since. And while the South's economy was certainly in many measurable ways very behind the North, it is clear that it was still, in the context of the 19th century, pretty prosperous. And that, in fact, between 1840 and 1860, the South's economy was growing at a faster rate per year than the North's. But we should point out, though, it was still quite a bit behind the North in per capita terms. We might mention some of these figures later. Another claim made by Fogel and Engerman is that slave-based agriculture is actually pretty efficient and productive and compares favorably with northern family farming in terms of efficiency and productivity. Along with that, they claim that field slaves were, in fact, for the most part, very hardworking and efficient. And, in fact, they're portrayed as basically having imbibed the Protestant work ethic and even many of the family and sexual mores of the white master class around them, which is a very controversial claim. Fogel and Engerman also argue that, quote, the material, not psychological, conditions of the lives of slaves compared favorably with those of free industrial workers. This is not to say that they were good by modern standards. It merely emphasizes the hard lot of all workers, free or slave, during the first half of the 19th century, end quote. They also conclude that the typical slave received back about 90% of the income he produced, which is controversial. They also argue that slavery was perfectly compatible with urbanization and industry, and they characterize slavery as a dynamic and modernizing element of American capitalism. And they do so, by the way, without really getting into the dicey question of what capitalism actually is or what they mean by the term anyway. Because, of course, there are a lot of different meanings of the word capitalism. And it's one of those words where if you don't specify what you mean by capitalism, it can lead to a lot of muddled thinking and unclear discussions and debates. Now, initially, this book, Time on the Cross, when it came out in the mid-70s, was hailed by a lot of people as this quantum leap in scholarship on American slavery. And it was especially considered that by a lot of economists of the time. However, many historians quickly questioned and attacked the book. In addition, as time went on, even some economists questioned some of their technical aspects and their statistical models and whether or not they actually had sufficient data to back up a lot of their arguments. But in general, historians have been more hostile towards this book than economists. Not only did historians question Fogel and Engerman's methodology and their conclusions, they were also very put off by the sort of tone that Fogel and Engerman had in the book, this, this air of being unquestionable, objective, scientific, you know, presenting truth with a capital T that Engerman and Fogel often used in the course of this book. And a lot of high-profile historians of the time attack this book. One historian named Herbert Gutman even published an entire book attacking Time on the Cross, and the book was called Slavery and the Numbers Game, in which Gutman argued that the book's biggest problem from an historian's point of view 
is that it fails to really explain and explore the beliefs and behaviors of the slaves themselves. And it largely assumes that the slaves really internalized all of the ideas about things like work and social behavior from the white society around them. And this brings up an interesting question to which we'll probably return in the future, the question of agency. The whole concept of blacks of the slave themselves, slaves themselves, as being subjects in their own right rather than objects, which for a long time history treated slaves as just sort of like passive objects. But of course, they were thinking, rationalizing, adapting, all these sorts of things, and doing their best within the circumstances in which they found themselves to try and get as, best, get as good of a deal for themselves as they could, given the, the situation which they faced. Similarly, historian Kenneth Stamp referred to the book in an essay he published in 1980 as, quote, a book which deprives blacks of their voices, their initiative, their humanity, end quote. And historian Peter Colchin, whose work I've cited a bunch of times in this series, does a good job of summing up this book, its impact, and criticisms of it in an article that he published in the Journal of Southern History in 1992. And this was largely an article actually talking about what was then a newly released book, Robert Fogel's sequel to Time on the Cross, entitled Without Consent or Contract. Colchin's article was entitled More Time on the Cross? Question mark an evaluation of Robert William Fogel's without consent or contract. By the way, Colchin argues that in without consent or contract, Fogel didn't really revise any of the main claims of time on the cross. And therefore, many of Colchin's criticisms of one book apply just as much to the other. Now, I've personally not read without consent or contract, so I'm just taking his word on that. Colchin says of time on the cross, quote, Within a few years of its publication, the prevailing view of the book had become one of almost bemused condescension. It was a flash in the pan, a bold but now discredited work that added little to the important stream of slavery revisionism that welled forth in the 1970s, end quote. Among Colchin's criticisms of this book, of really without consent or contract, but pretty much equally apply to Time on the Cross, would be things like, Fogel focuses only on questions that can be addressed with quantitative data, and in so doing, he ignores a lot of important historical questions and issues. Also, Fogel works under the assumption that human beings always behave in what we would consider an economically rational fashion. They're always rational actors. Colchin also criticizes the fact that Fogel characterizes American slavery as a capitalist institution without even acknowledging that this begs the question of what capitalism is or what he means by capitalism. Also, Colchin points out that Fogel doesn't distinguish between quantitative economic growth, basic measures like per capita output, and qualitative economic development and improvement, under which Colchin would include things like industry, transportation, literacy, education, etc., and I would add things like consumer goods, entertainment, and other products that actually make people's lives more enjoyable. By the way, this criticism of focusing on large aggregate figures without looking at the, the details and the qualitative parts is actually a criticism that's similar to one way that Austrian economists criticize Keynesian economists, which is by saying, look, they only look at big aggregate figures such as GDP – without looking into the details and the qualitative measures of what's actually being produced and does it actually provide for people's wants and needs. So just to pull an example of this from another book and something I talked about a long time ago, 
in the episode about the fall of the Soviet Union. Um, author Michael Dobbs points out in his book, Down with Big Brother, on the fall of the Soviet Union, that the Soviet economy was like this, quote, By the early 80s, the Soviet Union led the world in such basic economic indices as the production of iron, coal, timber, and cement. It boasted the world's biggest hydroelectric dam, largest steel factory, heaviest tractors, and most powerful rockets. At the same time, industry was unable to produce a decent razor blade or meet the demand for toilet paper, end quote. It's the same thing when you're looking at, you know, per per capita output in the Southern economy. Like, man, they're cranking out a lot of cotton. But is that the same thing really as the more diversified, productive, and consumer-friendly economy of the North? And there's this tension throughout the historiography on American slavery between how should we see the planters, the actual slave owners? Should we see them as very modern businessmen or as old school paternalists in a way hearkening back to European feudalism and things like that? It's absolutely true that from very early on in its history, going back to the colonial era, Southern slavery was very commercial, very tied into things like global trade, you know, producing staple crops for global markets, which, again, is a bit ironic, contradictory, something like that, considering how much of Southern planter ideology was supposedly scornful of materialism and commerce, you know, bashing Northern merchants for being too concerned with these sorts of things. But it's very important to make this distinction, and I give Peter Colchin a lot of credit that he makes this distinction repeatedly. The distinction about the ways in which antebellum slavery was and was not a market institution, which is very important. It's, it's a distinction Peter Colchin repeatedly makes in his book, American Slavery, 1619 to 1877. So here's an example of this, quote, Markets did undergird the slave economy, but they were markets of a particular type, limited primarily to the sale of agricultural commodities, the most important of which was cotton. A second type of market, that for labor power, i.e. labor for hire, was largely lacking. Slave owners engaged in extensive commercial relations, selling cotton and other agricultural products, buying items both for personal consumption and for use in their farming operations borrowing money and speculating in land and slaves. But the market was conspicuously absent in regulating relations between the masters and their slaves. In other words, relations of exchange were market-dominated, but relations of production were not, end quote. And historian James Oakes admitted this as well in his book Slavery and Freedom, wherein he wrote, quote, A highly developed market economy was a precondition to the emergence of any slave society. Yet, master and slave formed what was, at bottom, a non-market relationship. End quote. Historians Elizabeth Fox Genovese and Eugene Genovese wrote about this contradiction, and this tension in the Southern economy, the Southern mind, and Southern culture, in an essay entitled The Janus Face of Merchant Capital, in which they called American slavery a hybrid system and a bastard child, their words, that mixed capitalist and non-capitalist elements. And back to historian Peter Colchin on this whole issue, quote, This fundamental dualism, the juxtaposition of extensive commercial activity in an economy based on non-capitalist productive relations, helps account for the existence of so many apparently 
contradictory features of the antebellum South, end quote. And we'll probably in the future get more into kind of the mindset and ideology of both the slaves and the slave owners, what we can tell, and that will come up again. But I would say that slavery shows how systems that are only partially free market, only market oriented in some ways, can in fact cause great oppression and exploitation. Like you've had, you've got to have a genuinely full market system, not this partial thing where, oh yeah, there's, there's a market system in land and purchasing slaves, but there's no market system when it comes to actually labor. That, that doesn't work. A partially free market system that is in, in other ways anti-market is going to produce bad results or bad side effects at the very least. Now, it's true that cotton production was an important part of the antebellum American economy, not just the southern economy. During much of the antebellum period, cotton averaged half or a little more of all American exports most years. And the value of slaves reflected this cotton production. By the mid-1850s, a healthy field slave in his prime cost about as much adjusted for inflation as a brand new car today. One slave. And you begin to realize when you, when you think of that, how much of ridiculously wealthy oligarchs, the relatively small number of Southerners who owned, you know, a couple hundred slaves, how rich they really were. It is apparently justifiable, uh, one of Fogel and Engerman's claims, the claim that slaves provided, compared to other things, a good return on investment. Slaves provided a return on investment in the antebellum period between about 8 and 12% on average per year which is very similar to what industrial capital and railroads and things like that in the North returned to investors. But just because slavery was very profitable specifically to planters does not mean that it benefited most of the people in the South overall. This is sort of like a public choice situation, if you're familiar with public choice economics, where you've got concentrated benefits going to a small group and dispersed, relatively hard-to-see costs being distributed amongst the kind of general public. In, in the case of the antebellum South, the general public, the vast majority of people, would have been composed of non-slave-owning whites and then the slaves themselves. Just like the very high tariffs in America on the antebellum period benefited American factory owners at the expense of the vast majority of the rest of the country, so slavery benefited a small oligarchy of wealthy planters at the expense of everybody else. It's true that after the closure of the transatlantic slave trade in 1808, American slave owners, on average, became more conscientious about their slaves' physical health and well-being, because it was in their economic interest to do so. And it's true that as a result, slaves' life expectancy in the antebellum period, which was about 36 years, actually compared pretty similarly to urban Americans at the time and was better than the European life expectancy at the time, though a bit behind rural white American life expectancy. But that doesn't mean that the system, obviously it doesn't mean the system that it was morally justifiable, but it doesn't even mean that the system really is good and productive to the economy as a whole. It means that it's concentrating the benefits to a small group while the kind of vast majority of the people are are facing costs because of the institution. Jeffrey Hummel has a very interesting analysis of the economics of slavery in his book, Emancipating Slaves and Slaving Free Men. And he points out that slavery caused a lot of what economists call deadweight loss, 
to the southern economy. Now, I'm going to go ahead and, and read you the Wikipedia definition of deadweight loss. You know, I'm not a big fan of Wikipedia for like serious in-depth research, but for just getting basic definitions and facts and whatever, it's all right. So here is deadweight loss in Wikipedia. Quote, in economics, a deadweight loss, also known as excessive burden or allocative inefficiency, is a loss of economic efficiency that can occur when equilibrium for a good or service is not achieved or is not achievable. Causes of deadweight loss can include monopoly pricing in the case of artificial scarcity, externalities, taxes or subsidies, and binding price ceilings or floors, including minimum wages, end quote. And according to Jeffrey Hummel, quote, most deadweight loss results not from the damage done during theft, but from the way people alter their behavior in response. They reallocate resources either to seek transfers or to avoid them, end quote. Now, because of the nature of slavery, blacks in the South were rarely put in jobs that required a lot of independence and initiative, even though such jobs may have been not only more remunerative to the slave themselves, but also more valuable to the economy as a whole. Now, there were some slaves, believe it or not, who were exceptions to this, who did have jobs that required a lot of independence and initiative. One of the most famous, for example, was a Mississippi boat captain who was a slave named Simon Gray. And he basically was like an entrepreneur running his uh, shipping business. And he even employed people, including white wage workers, to work for him. But slaves like Simon Gray were rare exceptions. They were not typical of what most slaves would have experienced. But the fact that blacks in the South were prevented from going into what might potentially be more productive uh, fields of endeavor caused the productivity of the southern economy to be lower than it otherwise might have, remembering that slaves were about a third of the population of the South. Also keep in mind, unlike hired labor, slaves rarely had much in the way of discretion to choose jobs for themselves, which prevented most of them from being able to engage in specialization and the division of labor to a high degree. This also puts a damper on how productive and innovative the economy really is. As Hummel puts it, quote, slavery necessarily misallocated labor into less productive uses. Slaves were not only worse off, but the South's aggregate output was lower than otherwise, end quote. Now, in the, in the specific cases of large plantations, especially for certain crops, slavery could be a more productive form of labor simply because coercion could be used to make slaves work longer and or harder in the field at a lower cost than a hired hand would would do for market-determined wages. And owners and overseers in this situation could also force longer and harder work during key times of the year, namely the harvest. But again, that increased productivity in that way is only going to benefit, really, those who own the slaves it's not necessarily going to benefit the Southern economy as a whole. Now, it's true that some people did benefit from slavery, aside from just the slave owners, but those benefits tended to be fairly dispersed in those instances. So, for example, one dispersed benefit of slavery that did occur was a drop in clothing prices in Europe and America due to cotton production from cotton plantations. However, it's estimated that for every dollar slavery dropped the price of cotton clothing to a consumer, you have approximately $400 of lost benefit to an individual slave. 
So there's lots of different ways that there's deadweight loss in the Southern economy due to slavery. Another one is via the enforcement costs of slavery. Planters socialized the costs of enforcing slavery and policing the slaves via so-called slave patrols, which I may have mentioned before. These were sort of like militia outfits that patrolled the area and enforced things like the black codes and caught runaways and so on. And in most southern jurisdictions, this was a required duty of all able-bodied white males, even those who were not slave owners, which the majority of the population wasn't. And as Jeffrey Hummel puts it, quote, the slave patrols affixed a tax that shifted enforcement costs to small slaveholders and poor whites who own no slaves, end quote. Slave labor harmed the non-slave-owning white Southerners in a bunch of ways, of course. It also outcompeted poor white labor in many fields of employment. And in the economy of the South, such as it was, the main path to wealth was owning slaves and land, in contrast to the North, where there were a lot more varied paths to try to become wealthy, including innovation and entrepreneurship. The antebellum slave system produced not just a massive gap in standard of living between white and black, but a huge wealth gap in the South between whites who owned slaves and those who did not. So, for example, an average slave owner's personal wealth in 1860 was over $24,000, whereas the average non-slave-owning Southerner's personal wealth was less than $1,800. So, in other words, the slave owner averaged almost 14 times as much personal wealth as the non-slave owner. So the point is, in the antebellum South, slave-owning and wealth went hand-in-hand. They were so highly correlated as to be almost synonymous. Slave owners owned over 90% of the South's agricultural wealth, and this gap between slave-owning and non-slave-owning Southern whites was actually increasing on the eve of the Civil War. And we'll probably come back to in the future more about this idea of how did the Southern oligarchs get the majority of white Southerners who were not slave owners to actively participate in this system, which actually harmed them economically in a bunch of different ways. And of course, the main answer to that simply is through racist ideology and fear. But we'll come back to it probably in more detail in the future. Now, another way you can see that slavery is not as productive economically as a more freer market situation where you can see that it produces an economy that's not as attractive is in people voting with their feet. So maybe not surprisingly, the vast majority of the many, many immigrants who came into the United States during the antebellum period went to the North, not to the South. They rightly understood the North is where there was way more opportunity. And in addition to that, many white Southerners over 200,000 left the free state left Slave states for free states voted with their feet and moved north in the period of 1840 to 1860. Now, it's true that using just sort of like crude production uh, figures and so on, the South was producing a lot of value in cotton, but that doesn't address what was probably the largest problem with the South's economic growth, which was that even though the growth rates on the eve of the Civil War were impressive, they were based on a small number of staple crops, primarily cotton plus a few others. And the way the South's economy grew was simply by putting more land to cultivating those things. It did not achieve the exponential growth due to industrialization that the North was starting to see at this time. And the South really just didn't develop a diversified economy like the North had. Peter Colchin compares the South's wealth in the antebellum period to the wealth of modern-day Saudi Arabia because it, quote, 
was based on the fortuitous ability to export ever-increasing quantities of a highly prized commodity, but did not indicate a developed economy, end quote. You find that Northerners and Europeans who visited the South and traveled through it and so on and wrote about it in the late antebellum period often commented on the South's backwardness. And these impressions are actually, in this instance, backed up by quantitative data. If you look at per capita income, the South in 1860 was a little over $100 compared to the North's per capita income, which was over $140. So the North's economy is in crude terms, and this isn't even taking into account all the qualitative questions, but just in in quantity, the North's economy is 40% more productive than the South's as of 1860. The South was also significantly behind on other specific measures of basic economic modernization like manufacturing, railroads, urbanization, etc. Peter Colchin admits that Fogel and Engerman were correct in their argument that slavery was still quite profitable at the time of the Civil War, but he stresses that this does not mean that the South's overall economy was benefited by the institution. Instead, he argues that, quote, increased staple production masked economic backwardness. The slave regime could tolerate and even embrace limited urbanization and industrialization, but it could never accept the ideals that underlay capitalist transformation, because central to those ideals was economic freedom, including the freedom of laborers to contract for wages, end quote. So slavery may have been profitable to slave owners, but when you look at the overall picture of the South's economy before the Civil War, I agree with Jeffrey Hummel when he writes, quote, we can now appreciate the real horror of slave exploitation. Slavery inflicted on blacks tremendous pain, suffering, and sometimes death, along with other more mundane burdens besides, such as lost income. The American South not only was poorer overall as a result, but non-slave-holding whites were also poorer. Wealthy planters extracting enormous transfers from black slaves and smaller transfers from poor whites earn rates of return no greater than northern manufacturers and merchants." So in other words, even with all of the the transfers and the exploitation and so on, they really weren't able to do much better in their profit rates than a northern businessman. And yet, since the total value of slaves as of 1860 was in the billions of dollars, the slave-owning oligarchy were willing to do almost anything they could to protect this institution, again, brings to mind public choice economics, which tells us that those who get the concentrated benefits of state policies are usually most of the time willing to fight a hell of a lot harder to keep their benefits than those who bear the very, very widely dispersed costs of those policies are willing to fight against them. And again, I highly recommend Jeffrey Hummel's discussion of the economics of slavery in emancipating slaves and slaving free men. He does a great job of applying public choice analysis and an understanding of this concept economists talk about called rent seeking to the problem of slavery as an economic system. The term rent seeking in economics has a very specific meaning. And again, I'll refer to Wikipedia for just a basic definition. Quote, rent seeking involves seeking to increase one share of existing wealth without creating new wealth. Rent-seeking results in reduced economic efficiency through poor allocation of resources, reduced actual wealth creation, lost government revenue, increased income inequality, and potentially national decline, end quote. 
And Jeffrey Hummel argues, and I very much agree with him, that slavery was basically an example of rent-seeking on behalf of Southern slave owners. Quote, Slavery created an incentive structure where slaveholders gained from making society worse off. Not only were all Southerners free and slave on average poorer than Northerners, but also free Southerners were on average poorer than Northerners, despite the planters' exploitation of the slaves. This seems to confirm that the losses of non-slaveholders due to slavery far exceeded their gains. End quote. So, I hope I didn't lose you too much in the weeds, but I thought when discussing the economics of slavery, because it's such a controversial topic, that I would really kind of dig into the historiography a bit. But now I want to give a kind of galloping, relatively fast-paced look at the politics of slavery at the federal level in the United States during the antebellum period. And and understand, this is going to be fairly skeletal, um, just to give an overview, but After the ratification of the Constitution, um, within just a few years, there was a Fugitive Slave Act passed to enforce the Fugitive Slave Clause of the Constitution. And this was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1793, and I'll just read a few excerpts from it so you can get the flavor. Section 3 of this act said, "...that when a person held to labor in any of the United States, or of the territories on the northwest or south of the River Ohio shall escape into any other part of the said states or territory, the person to whom such labor or service may be due is hereby empowered to seize or arrest such fugitive from labor, and upon proof before any judge, it shall be the duty of such judge to remove the said fugitive from labor to the state or territory from which he or she fled. And section 4 reads, that any person who shall knowingly and willingly obstruct or hinder such claimant shall forfeit the sum of $500, which a $500 fine is annoying today. Um, Imagine what it meant in 1793 before all the inflation we've had over the last 200 years. So that was the basic law in the books for over 50 years dealing with this question of if a slave escapes from a slave state and and gets into a free state or territory, what happens? And for a while, slavery was not really a big issue in national-level politics in America. It was sort of simmering in the background, though, because it wasn't just the issue of slavery itself, it's the issue of, as the country expands, when and how does slavery expand or not expand into these new territories? And you've got a small but growing group of Northerners who are really getting impatient with the South as far as the whole phasing out slavery thing. But the first time that slavery became a really big deal in national politics after the passage of the Constitution was the so-called Missouri Crisis in 1819 and 1820. Now, what happened was the territory of Missouri applied for statehood in 1819 and was asking to be admitted as a slave state. There already were slaves there. I think something like, you know, 15 or 20 percent of the population of the Missouri Territory were already slaves. Now, what do you do with Missouri? Do you let it become a slave state or not? The Northwest Ordinance had been passed back in 1787 that said that the states north of the Ohio River would be free territories and and then free states. But Missouri was a new territory out past the Ohio River, west of the Mississippi River. It was part of the territory that had been gotten from the Louisiana Purchase. So the Northwest Ordinance really didn't apply one way or the other. And the big issue 
And the reason why a lot of people were willing to fight about this was really the balance of power in the U.S. Senate. Due to immigration and other population growth, the North had a clear majority in the House of Representatives by 1820. But representation in the Senate was exactly evenly split 50-50 between North and South, between slave and free states. And bringing in an extra slave state in the form of Missouri threatened to destabilize that balance. And so there was a a huge political um, crisis, a lot of uh, tempers flared. But then long story short, we get the Missouri Compromise of 1820, which was engineered primarily by Henry Clay. And the kind of basic overview of the Missouri Compromise is Missouri will be admitted as a slave state. But Maine, which had up till then been a territory, Maine will be admitted as a free state in order to counterbalance. So you have plus two slave state senators, but then you'll also have plus two free state senators to keep it 50-50. And the Missouri Compromise also said that in any territories west of Missouri, the 36-degree, 30-minute line of latitude will be the dividing line between territories open to slavery south of that line of latitude versus those close to it. And that appeared to settle the issue. But keep in mind that in 1820, when this deal was made, The United States did not yet have control of Texas or the things west of that and sort of what we now think of as the Southwest. Those things were all still part of Mexico. And so when the Missouri Compromise was passed, it really was keeping slavery out of almost everywhere um, what was left of the American West other than what today is Oklahoma. That was the only part of the West that the United States had at the time that was south of that line. So it still, I guess, kind of looked like To Northerners, slavery was being quarantined, which is what a lot of them wanted, not because they were diehard abolitionists, but for a variety of other reasons. But then came the annexation of Texas in 1845 and the American War with Mexico in 1846 through 1848. And the annexation of Texas, obviously you can tell what territory that brings into the United States. The War with Mexico brings in Pretty much what we think of today as the Southwest, most of what today are the states of New Mexico, Arizona, Nevada, California. And this includes a lot of what are geographically southern territories. And so the question then arises, will slavery be allowed to spread to any of those territories or not? And who gets to decide and how do we decide this? And it reignites the North versus South, free state versus slave state political tensions. Now, understand Very few Northerners are are diehard abolitionists who want to end slavery quickly everywhere it already exists. The real argument in the late 1840s and spilling into the 1850s more than anything else is over the spread of slavery. That's the real question. Very few Northerners who were high up in mainstream politics were proposing to end slavery in the southern states where it already had been established. But a lot of Northern politicians are friendly to the idea of not letting slavery spread anywhere new. So in the late 1840s and increasingly in the 1850s, you find that when it comes to many political issues at the national level, region trumps party. Now, The the political party system at the time was the so-called second party system in American history, the Whigs and the Democrats. But after the war with Mexico, increasingly politicians in Congress are lining up not based on whether they're a Whig or whether they're a Democrat, but whether they're a Northerner or a Southerner. So region is trumping party in a lot of important political questions. And you can even see this, believe it or not, in church politics at this time, setting aside politics politics. 
The two largest denominations in America in the antebellum period were the Methodists and the Baptists, and both of them officially split into separate northern and southern contingents in the 1840s, in large part over this issue of slavery. By the way, in the 1850s, the Democratic Party will likewise split into entirely separate northern and southern factions. And one of the first places we see this occurring in, in Congress, the split between North and South that crosses party lines, is with the so-called Wilmot Proviso. The Wilmot Proviso was something that came up in 1846, actually at the start of the War with Mexico. And it's named after a Pennsylvania congressman named David Wilmot, who was a Democrat. But as a Democrat from the Northeast, he was against the spread of slavery. And so he tacked on this amendment to an appropriations bill related to the Mexican War, and the Wilmot Proviso said that, obviously, if this passes, slavery shall be prohibited in any lands we take from Mexico in this war. And when it came up for a vote, congressmen in the House lined up not by party, not by Whig versus Democrat on this issue, but by North versus South by region. Now, supporters of this point of view that no spread of slavery should be allowed to any new territory where it doesn't already exist were known as free soilers while many Southerners who opposed it had a point of view that gets known as constitutional protection, which is slavery is constitutionally protected potentially anywhere, and Congress has no right to prohibit it from spreading into any territory. Well, what happens to the Wilmot Proviso is it passes the House, but it gets stuck in the Senate where there's that 50-50 split still between slave and freed states. But it's a portent of things to come. So those are the two um, kind of opposite views on the spread of slavery out west free soil no not at all constitutional protection congress can't do anything to stop it and then there were some different ideas of kind of compromise views on that question so for example some people did propose extending the missouri compromise line that 3630 line of latitude all the way to the pacific but that didn't really get much traction another idea that did get some traction was popular sovereignty Popular sovereignty is an idea that is mostly supported by Northern Democrats from kind of like the Midwest and Great Lakes states. And popular sovereignty basically amounts to let the people in a territory decide for themselves whether they want to have slavery or not. Now, this sounds appealing. It sounds democratic. It sounds, you know, in keeping with the basic concept of of federalism, but it does leave some issues. It means that a territory would have to be open to slavery, at least initially, until it got enough people and had a vote on whether or not to have slavery. And also, its proponents had a hard time specifying at what point prior to statehood can a territorial government potentially make the decision to ban slavery. And this issue split the Northern Democratic Party. In general, the Northerners who were more from the Great Lakes area and so on were more likely to be proponents of popular sovereignty, while those Democrats from the Northeast would be more likely to be drawn to free soil. Now, there's a presidential election in 1814, and the Democrats nominate Senator Lewis Cass of Michigan, who was the originator of this idea of popular sovereignty. While the Whig Party did the only thing that ever worked to get them elected a president, which is nominate a war hero and run a campaign that tries to avoid the issues. They nominated a popular Mexican war hero, General Zachary Taylor, and Taylor, though himself a southern slave owner, 
refused to take a clear position on the Wilmot Proviso and in general tried to appear kind of above the partisan and political fray. Now, Taylor wins, and ironically for someone who tried to avoid these issues running for the office, they kind of fall upon him anyway. And this is in an atmosphere where, going into the 1850s, really the radicals on both sides of this issue of the spread of slavery are starting to take more and more control of the debate. And you actually find a lot of conspiracy theorizing going on on both sides of the issue. So, for example, Northerners who were opposed to the spread of slavery talked about a slave power conspiracy to spread slavery everywhere in America or even to other parts of the planet. Meanwhile, Southerners had conspiracy theories about abolitionists sponsoring violent uprisings and supporting full citizenship rights for blacks and this and this horrible and scary. Now, the conspiracy theories of both sides did have some truth on their side, but of course, the degree of what the other side was really trying to do was wildly exaggerated, as, as is so often the case. But during President Taylor's term in office, the issue comes back up with a vengeance because of California. California, which the United States had gotten in the war with Mexico just a few years earlier, boomed in population way ahead of the rest of the West because of the famous gold rush of 1849. And because of that gold rush, by 1850, California is already to be a state. And they apply to become a free state with no slavery allowed. Now, President Taylor initially tried to keep dodging the issue as much as possible. And as a result, the powerful senator, by this point he's a senator, Henry Clay, backed by another powerful senator, Daniel Webster, and these are both Whigs, they offer another compromise to try and deal with this. Same guy, Henry Clay, who was behind the Missouri Compromise of 1820. And this is a multi-part compromise trying to like throw a bone to everybody. But and, and I'll mention the specifics of the compromise in just a moment. But Clay doesn't get the the compromise passed. He actually um, is forced to retire because of health reasons and dies soon thereafter. But the man who sort of picks up the baton of Henry Clay's proposed compromise over California is the Illinois Democratic Senator Stephen Douglas, who, like again, like so many Democrats from that part of the country is a proponent of popular sovereignty. Stephen Douglas tries to pass Clay's compromise, and he takes a different tactic. Clay had tried to pass it all at once in one bill. Stephen Douglas decides he's going to try and pass all these different provisions separately, individually, rather than altogether. And the result is something called the Compromise of 1850. And the essence of it is as follows. And it's again, it's trying to throw a little bone to everybody in this debate. The Compromise of 1850 says California will be a free state. The territories of New Mexico and Utah will decide the question for themselves. So sort of throwing a bone to the popular sovereignty people there. The Compromise of 1850 also says the slave trade, meaning the buying and selling of slaves, but not slavery itself, will be abolished in D.C. This was throwing a bone to northeastern anti-slavery people whose sensibilities were being offended by having to walk past slave auctions in Washington, D.C. when they were in Congress. It's largely a symbolic issue. Slavery continued to be legal in Washington, D.C., right up into the Civil War. It was actually, I think, a year or two into the war before slavery was gotten rid of in D.C. Anyway, the Compromise of 1850 also included a much stricter federal Fugitive Slave Act. This is something that ended up being very offensive to many Northerners, even many who had previously been kind of neutral on slavery. By the way, several northern states actually used various forms of nullification and state interposition against this fugitive slave law in various ways. 
So, for example, Vermont passed something they called the habeas corpus law, which basically invalidated the Federal Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 in Vermont. And in 1855, the Supreme Court of Wisconsin even went so far as to declare the Fugitive Slave Law of 1850 unconstitutional. And there were also individual instances of jury nullification on behalf of Northerners who were accused of not complying with this law as well. Now, what was so troubling to many Northerners, even those who previously hadn't been very fired up about slavery, was the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850 required government officials and even regular citizens in the North to actively assist in the capture and return of fugitive slaves. And it said that law enforcement who caught a runaway slave would get a bonus or a promotion. Meanwhile, law enforcement officials who failed to actively assist catching a slave would face a $1,000 fine, which, by the way, in today's terms, is enough to buy a pretty nice new car adjusted for inflation. The act also said that citizens who aided escaping slaves faced a punishment of a $1,000 fine plus six months in prison. In addition, alleged fugitive slaves were not even entitled to a trial to determine who they are and whether they were really fugitive slaves. And in fact, the burden of proof to quote unquote, return them to a position of slavery was very, very minimal. Basically just the word of a slave owner would often be sufficient if the law was followed. And so this law actually did in fact result in some free blacks being kidnapped and enslaved who were not even fugitive slaves. By the way, one side effect of this law was that More and more escaped slaves made it their goal to get all the way to Canada rather than just to a northern territory, even though some northern states and territories, like I said, did resist this law. Now, as the as these different parts of this compromise were being bandied about in Congress, President Taylor actually surprised everybody, though a southerner and a slave owner. He didn't want any kind of compromise at all. He said that California should come in as a free state and that should be that with no compromise, no strings attached. However, President Taylor died in office, and for the sake of of time and focus, I won't get into the details of that here. It's it's very interesting, though. And his successor as president, his vice president who steps up, was Millard Fillmore, who, unlike Taylor, is not willing to resist Congress on the Compromise of 1850. So with President Millard Fillmore going along with it, the compromise passes. Now, this compromise was intended to be the final word on the slavery issue in American politics, settle it once and for all. But it was not to be. Instead, the compromise, as is so often the case with compromises that try to be all things to all people, actually pleased almost nobody. Plus, politics only increased, becoming more and more about regional anger and disputes over the spread of slavery, and less and less about good old-fashioned traditional partisanship. And as region continued to trump party in American politics and the lines between Whigs and Democrats became harder to figure out, the parties themselves really weakened as institutions. And regionalism, sectionalism, whatever you want to call it, continued to fill in that gap. And what really brought about the death knell for the second party system in American politics, which ended the Whig party and for a while severely hobbled the Democratic Party, was the so-called Kansas-Nebraska Act. The bill that would become the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854 was championed by Stephen Douglas, that Democratic senator from Illinois, and also supported by a lot of Southern Whigs. The bill was intended to fast-track the territories of Kansas and Nebraska towards statehood and towards development. Now, Stephen Douglas was not championing this bill because he really cared, one way or the other, whether or not slavery spread into Kansas and Nebraska. Douglas's ulterior move was... He was trying to get a transcontinental railroad route 
that would use Chicago in his home state as the main junction. And if you look on a map where Kansas and Nebraska are in relation to Illinois, they're pretty much dead west. So he's basically just trying to speed up the process of settling and developing Kansas and Nebraska in order to strengthen his hand in lobbying to have the Transcontinental Railroad built on a route whose eastern terminus is Chicago. And like I said, the bill calls for using popular sovereignty to decide this issue. Let the voters of those territories decide as they move towards statehood. Now, apparently Douglas didn't really care that much one way or the other, whether they wanted slavery or not. And he actually seems to have believed that both would become free states simply because of climate and geography. Now, the bill did end up passing, but Northern Democrats, along with actually a lot of Whigs and also abolitionists, all rose up against the bill. The act had the basic effect of completely voiding any semblance of the Missouri Compromise, because these territories are both north of 3630. And while Nebraska is far enough north that there was never really any chance slavery would pass there anyway, Kansas is just southern enough that it's kind of in a border state climate. And there's at least a possibility that slavery and staple crop agriculture might go there. This act, the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, really was the death knell for the second party system and more than anything else led to the formation of the Republican Party. And in fact, by, eight, by the 1856 presidential election, the Whig Party is, for practical purposes, gone. Two new parties arose, largely made up of leftover Whigs mixed with some other um, disaffected Northern Democrats to try to take the place of the defunct Whig Party. One was the party called the American Party, better known by its nickname, the Know-Nothing Party. This was mostly composed of former Whigs, and really it was all about sort of being anti-immigrant and being the party of white native Protestant Americans. These were people who were focused on those issues because they were bothered by the increasing German and Irish immigration to the United States, and many of these German and Irish immigrants were not only furners, they were Catholics. By the way, the nickname of this party, the Know Nothing Party, came about because they were very secretive. They almost sort of acted like the Masons or some other secret society. And when they were asked by outsiders what they were up to, they would always say, I know nothing. So they get just known as the Know Nothing Party. Obviously not a nickname they picked for themselves. Now, the Kansas-Nebraska Act birthed another party that had a lot more potential to appeal to a wider array of Americans, and that was the Republican Party. It was a very diverse coalition of people who disagreed on a lot of things, but generally opposed the spread of slavery into Western territories. Now, some members of the New Republican Party were genuine abolitionists who wanted to end slavery everywhere as soon as possible. Many of them were more moderate, though. Many of them were only willing to go so far as to say they wanted to stop its spread. Abraham Lincoln was actually considered a more moderate Republican. And on most other issues like economic and social policies, the Republican Party was not much different from the Whig Party that preceded it. It carries on a lot of Whig ideas, um, not favorable to Catholics and immigrants overall, though they were not as virulent against that as the know-nothings. Um, they were favorable to kind of the old Hamiltonian slash Henry Clayian ideas of using the federal government to promote development, have a high tariff, have a national bank, etc., and the party, the Republican Party, was explicitly regional in its origins. In fact, one early leader in the party said explicitly that the party was, quote, a party of the North pledged against the South, end quote. But they had a wider appeal in the North than the old Whig Party, in part because they supported a homesteading act 
for the Western Territory, something the Whig Party had opposed. And this allowed the Republican Party to scoop up some Western Democrats, some Western kind of Northwestern Democrats. Now, in the South, at the same time, the Democratic Party was quickly becoming the only viable party. Ironically, in the South, previously, the Whig Party had been the party of the elite planter oligarchy, but now most of them were shifting over to the Democratic Party as the Whig Party fell apart. Even though the Democratic Party had, in the South, for the most part, been more the party of the Southern small farmers. And we can see this new alignment starting to come about in the 1856 election. It's the first time the new Republican Party runs a presidential candidate. They run Mexican war hero and explorer John Fremont, who was a free soiler. And the Democrats nominate a northern candidate, James Buchanan of Pennsylvania. The know-nothings also ran a candidate, former President Millard Fillmore. And when the votes shake out, the Democrats come in first and and win. James Buchanan becomes the next president. Fremont comes in second, and the know-nothing candidate Millard Fillmore comes in third. So as a result of this, the Know Nothing pretty much the Know Nothing Party pretty much dies out, and many of them join the Republican Party because it was closer to their ideology anyway. Now I'm going to briefly mention what goes on in Kansas during this time period, so-called Bleeding Kansas. After the passage of the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which said that Kansas would have popular sovereignty to decide whether to have slavery or not, anti-slavery New Englanders begin organizing and moving into Kansas specifically so that they could live there and vote against slavery. That's how much they cared about the issue. At the same time, pro-slavery people, primarily from nearby Missouri, began moving in for the opposite reason, to vote for slavery. And some sporadic but very nasty violence breaks out between these two factions in Kansas. And it's really in a limbo state. In 1855, there are two different constitutional conventions to write a Kansas state constitution one pro-slavery and one anti-slavery. They meet simultaneously and write and set up two different Kansas governments. And you have this question of which one's legitimate. So Kansas remains in limbo and with kind of a certain amount of fourth generation warfare almost happening between these two different factions. It's where John Brown first unleashes some violence against pro-slavery people in Kansas. And while that's going on, while you have fighting in Kansas over this issue, you get the controversial Dred Scott case in 1857, which the short version of that is Dred Scott was a slave who was taken into territories north of the Missouri Compromise Line, including even a two-year stay in Illinois, when his master, who uh, I believe was a military officer, traveled. And so as a result of having been brought into free territory for a significant amount of time, Dred Scott managed to get a lawyer and file a lawsuit for his freedom. And it ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court ruled in a 7-2 decision that, number one, black people, free or slave, did not have the same rights as white people anyway. And so, thus, Dred Scott wasn't even a citizen and didn't have the right to bring a lawsuit against someone who was a citizen. The Dred Scott decision also said the Missouri Compromise was unconstitutional anyway because Congress did not have the power to ban slavery in a territory. This is siding with the so-called Constitutional Protection Faction. And that as a result of these things, Dred Scott's temporary journey into free territory did not alter his status as a slave. Now, the implications of this were huge. Many Northerners thought this might be a sneaky way to try to get slavery validated into the North. They started to ask, you know, can a Southerner just like move here for a long time, bring his slaves and have them here? And many Northerners, with some justification, saw this decision as yet more evidence of a slave power conspiracy to make slavery a nationwide thing. 
It's just a year later in 1858 that an obscure former congressman from Illinois, a one-term Whig congressman in the 1840s, named Abraham Lincoln, who had only recently started mentioning the issue of slavery after you know a multi-decade political career, becomes the nominee of the new Republican Party to run for a Senate seat, the Senate seat of Stephen Douglas in Illinois. And this was a really important race because... This is this new party challenging arguably the most important senator of the day, Stephen Douglas. Illinois was an interesting state at this time. It was kind of a southern-friendly northern state. And there was sort of a split. Northern Illinois was largely populated by people who came from the northeast, whereas southern Illinois was largely populated by people who came up from states like Kentucky. So there were a lot of southern sympathizers in Illinois, but then a lot of very much anti-southern people in Illinois. And Illinois laws and constitutions had a lot of very racist elements. For example, Illinois' state constitution at the time prohibited any free black from entering the state. Over the course of the election, Lincoln and Douglas debated each other a total of seven times in different towns around Illinois. And the debates got a lot of national press coverage and reached an audience far beyond just Illinois. And in in these debates, Lincoln repeatedly proclaimed his opposition to the Kansas-Nebraska Act, which was Stephen Douglas's baby. And he also repeatedly mentioned his opposition to slavery, but he always tempered it by asserting white supremacy because he was worried that Douglas would accuse him of being, you know, too pro-black rights or something like this. It was during these debates that Lincoln made his famous A House Divided Cannot Stand speech. And it was also in these debates, though, that he repeatedly made statements like this to try and prevent himself from being accused of being too sympathetic to blacks. He said things like this, which somehow never get carved into the walls of the Lincoln Monument. Quote, I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races that I am not nor ever have been in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. And I will say, in addition to this, that there is a physical difference between the white and black races, which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior. And I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. End quote from Abraham Lincoln. And it wasn't like that was a one-time thing where in a Mel Gibson sort of moment he had too much to drink and went on a racist rant. He said things like that regularly in these debates. And it shows you that just because somebody... Um, is willing to say slavery is morally bad and is opposed to it spreading into new territories doesn't necessarily mean that that person is not still, at least by our standards today, pretty racist. You can probably figure out why statements like this are not carved into the Lincoln Temple in Washington, D.C. Now, Douglas approached the slavery question, for the most part, amorally, and defended the idea of popular sovereignty and said that he personally didn't care which side ultimately won in places out west. He thought it was sort of a local issue. Lincoln was able to pick apart some of the logical problems with some of his arguments. But Douglas ended up winning the election and keeping a Senate seat. However, many people nationwide in the North at the time thought Lincoln won the argument. And it was really what got Lincoln's star going. His political career was pretty defunct before this. 
who's kind of a has-been. And it was these debates with Douglas where, yeah, he didn't win the election, but he got a lot of attention that caused him to be a, a rising star within this new Republican Party. Now, just one year after that, you get John Brown's raid in October of 1859. The New England religious, zealot, and anti-slavery, quote-unquote, extremist, John Brown led a band of 22 men, of whom five were black, against the federal arsenal at Harpers Ferry, Virginia. Today it's in West Virginia. Back then there was no such thing as West Virginia. Now, in my upcoming stuff about the Civil War sometime off in the future, I'll probably talk about this episode in more detail because it was very interesting. But basically the goal was to start a violent slave uprising to seize the arms from this government arsenal to, to arm the slaves. And John Brown's group held the arsenal for almost two days before a group of United States Marines under the command of an army colonel named Robert E. Lee stormed the place and killed and captured all of Brown's men. Brown himself was captured, tried, and executed by Virginia for treason and was hanged. The whole thing was very divisive to the country and just threw a lot of gas on the whole controversy. Ironically, as Howard Zinn points out in People's History of the United States, quote, In 1859, John Brown was hanged with federal complicity for attempting to do by small-scale violence what Lincoln would do by large-scale violence several years later, end slavery, end quote. And it's in this crazy atmosphere that you get one of the craziest elections in American history, that of 1860. It's wild. It ends up being a four-way race, and not a four-way not a four-way race where two of the candidates are, you know, the Libertarian and the Green Party and they get 0.01% of the vote, but actually a four-way race of four legit serious contenders. Now, the Democratic Party ends up splitting over the issue of the spread of slavery and, you know, popular sovereignty versus constitutional protection and all these sorts of things. And even the Democratic Party gets split apart. There's actually a separate Northern and Southern Democratic Party convention and the Northern Democrats nominate Stephen Douglas for president, and the Southern Democrats nominate a guy named John Breckinridge as their candidate. The Republican Party ends up nominating Abraham Lincoln sort of as a compromise candidate. There were a couple of other candidates who a lot of people actually liked more than Lincoln, but the problem was um, the supporters of these other two candidates hated each other, and so Lincoln emerged as sort of a dark horse compromise. And one of the things that helped Lincoln's appeal was he was considered moderate on the slavery question, not a more radical abolitionist type, like, for example, William Seward. And the Republican Party's platform under which Lincoln ran said nothing about interfering with slavery where it already existed, and in fact, only called for halting its spread further west. Also, one other party emerged seemingly out of nowhere, the so-called Constitutional Union Party, largely made up of former Whigs from the South, and they nominated a candidate called John Bell, and they're trying to be middle of the road. When the election goes down, they're going to win in a few of the so-called border states that are sort of Southern, but not like really Southern. Now, when the votes go down, Lincoln wins almost every state in the North. Breckinridge wins the Deep South. Bell wins some of the border states. And Douglas, if I remember right, did not win a single state entirely. But because this was a race in which all the votes were split amongst four candidates, Lincoln, though he wins the Electoral College by almost entirely sweeping the North, does so getting less than 40 percent 
of the popular vote. He got like 39% of the popular vote. In other words, more than 60% of Americans had not voted for Lincoln to be president in 1860. But nonetheless, he wins the office. And in hearing of his election in very quick succession, the states of the so-called Deep South begin to secede from the Union. So that was a quick gallop through the national picture of politics in the antebellum period in regard to the issues centering around slavery and its spread and so on. So in the future, we'll talk about some other aspects of slavery. We'll look at the global context. We'll look more about, we'll look more into the social aspects of slavery, maybe some of the ideological aspects. And we'll also look at things like how it ended and the the effects of that and so on. Thank you for listening to the Dangerous History Podcast. Please check out the website, profcj.org. That's profcj.org. There you can find show notes for all the episodes, links, and other information. You can also email subscribe to the website by putting in your email in the little subscribe box off to the side there. And if you do that, you'll get an email notification every time something new is posted at the website. I promise you won't get any spam or anything Uh, from me if you sign up there. You'll just get an announcement every time something new is posted on the website, which most of the time means a new episode, but occasionally is another sort of announcement or what have you. Please feel free to contact me with questions, comments, or other things. The email address is profcj at profcj.org. That's profcj at profcj.org. You can also connect with the show and follow it on social media, like us on Facebook, follow on Twitter, and you can find the show in podcast venues such as iTunes and Stitcher. You can subscribe there. Uh, By subscribing in iTunes, you'll help the show rise in the iTunes charts, and of course, that will help grow the show's audience. If you like this show and want to see it continue to keep going and to grow and to improve, there are a lot of ways you can help support it. One is simply to spread the word about the Dangerous History podcast to anyone you think might appreciate it. You can also help spread the word by leaving ratings and reviews in podcast venues like iTunes and Stitcher. And of course, we very much need and appreciate financial support. You can go to profcj.org donate to see a whole bunch of different ways that you would help the show out financially. One, of course, is patreon.com profcj, where if you pledge to help out the show with a donation of at least $1 per episode, Remember, not only will I thank you by name in the next episode that I make, but you'll also have access to bonus episodes that I put there periodically that are available nowhere else. You can also make one-time or recurring donations via PayPal at profcj.org donate, and I have a Bitcoin address if you want to donate that way. And of course, a final way you can help out the show financially is when you do your Amazon shopping, go to Amazon through any of my affiliate Amazon links on my website. And if you do that, The Dangerous History Podcast will get a small cut, a little commission from anything you purchase at no additional cost to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been another episode of the Dangerous History Podcast, helping you learn the past so you can understand the present and prepare for the future.